Welcome to Gospel in Life. This month, we're looking at stories from the life of Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, we see how the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection confounded the expectations of the people he encountered. Listen now to today's teaching from Tim Keller on the surprising life of Christ. Usually in a a service, we we read the Scripture a little and we explain it a lot. Today, we uh, read it a lot and explain it a little. And uh, what we have in all these passages of the Scripture we've been reading is is what you might call the essential message of Christianity. It's, of course, it's the message of Christmas, but the message of Christmas, and by the way, the message of Easter, and by the way, the message of any Christian uh, special day is the message of the gospel. In all the passages we've been reading, we have the message, but in one of the passages, we have one person's response to that message. And I'd like to reread that and point a few things out to us because uh, what you're going to be having at the Christmas time is you'll be, you're going to be hearing this word. You're going to be getting this message. The question is, how should you respond to it? And uh, the Annunciation, the Lesson 2, Luke 1, 26 to 38, it goes this way. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at these words, his words, and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who has said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Now, I said, first of all, you have the message. Notice that the the messenger speaks three times, and Mary responds three times. Now, first of all, what's the message? Well, maybe we can be pretty uh, much at summary here. The message is the Most High. Notice God is called the Most High twice. The Most High has become the Most Low. The message is that the uncreated power that sustains the stars has become a baby. The message is uh, seek not in courts or palaces nor... Uh, royal curtains draw, but search the stables. See your God extended on the straw. What you have here is God becoming human, the Most High becoming the Most Low. And what does that mean? It means, first of all, that God is far greater than we thought and that we are more sinful than we thought. Uh, see, on the one hand, it teaches, this is the message, and this was the message coming to, to Mary. First of all, the message of the Incarnation is God is greater than we thought. 
Uh, today, many, many people, in fact, of course, every philosophy and religion and thought form except Christianity says that God is too great to become a single, unique, weak human being. God cannot become a human being, a single, weak, unique human being. People say it for different reasons. Uh, humanists, in a sense, say it because they resist the doctrine of the Incarnation because it makes Christ too central. They feel that they resist the centrality of Christ in saying God became one human being. Uh, Judaism and Islam say it for a different reason. They say God is too great to have become limited like that. But no. This passage tells us that what makes him the most high is that he was able to become most low. In fact, the very, uh, to, to disbelieve in the incarnation in the name of the greatness of God is actually to diminish his greatness. One writer put it this way, and I think it's, it's fascinating. He says, the power of the higher, just insofar as it is truly higher, can come down to include the lesser. And everywhere the great enters the little, its power to do so is virtually the test of its greatness. Now listen, think, think. Solid bodies exemplify truths of plane geometry, but plane geometry figures no truths in solid. Can I give you a little bit more familiar? You can become kittenish with your kitten, but your kitten will never be able to talk philosophy with you. Can I become more emotional? When I am, when you are, filled with peace and joy, you can enter into the hurt of someone who is despondent. But when you are despondent, you cannot enter in to the joy of somebody else. Why? Because joy and peace are the higher, and anger and brokenness are the lower. You see, say it again, everywhere the great enters the little, its power to do so is the test of its greatness. And put it another way, the inability of the lesser to enter the greater is a proof of its lesserness. Hitler could never understand Lincoln, but Lincoln can understand Hitler. Because wisdom always understands foolishness, because wisdom sees the foolishness in yourself. But foolishness, to foolishness, wisdom is utterly incomprehensible. Unselfishness knows selfishness is number, but, but to the selfish, the deeds of unselfishness are completely incomprehensible. Therefore, if God is truly great, this makes perfect sense. In fact, now we know how great he is. The greatness of God is far greater than we ever thought. The most high has become the most low. And that's the first thing that this message tells Mary. It's the first thing it tells all of us. God, you thought God was great, Mary. You have no idea how great. We know instinctively that the greater, by definition, is great because it can enter into the less, and the lesser, by definition, is lesser because it cannot enter into the greater. The greater has become the lesser. God has become human. But by the way, the Incarnation is also a message not just about the greatness of God, it's a message about the sinfulness of us. In other words, what Mary was being told, what we're being told at Christmas, is that we're more sinful than we thought. Well, you say, where is that? Well, see, gifts, as wonderful as gifts are, gifts all carry a message with them. On, on Christmas morning, I will open all these gifts under the tree, and they'll be from people all around my life, 
And what if the first gift I open up is a book and it says, How to Win Friends and Influence People? Hmm. So I put it aside. And the next book is How to Lose 50 Pounds in This Excellent Diet. Hmm. And I put that aside. And the next one is A Year's Supply of Rogaine, let's say. So I look at these, and if I turn to the people who have given these to me and say, thank you, what I'm really saying is, yes, I'm bald, fat, and obnoxious. (laughs) There's no way to accept certain gifts without admitting something about yourself. Now, how sweet it is, you see, to think that God gave us his son. How cozy. You know what that means? God became a baby. God emptied himself of power. God emptied himself, eventually, of life. God emptied himself. God came down. What it's saying is, we are so bad off that nothing less than the sacrifice of the Son of God could save us. You see, when you look at certain gifts, if I open those gifts under the tree, I look at those gifts and I'll say, am I that way? And when you look at the wonderful gift at Christmas, you have to look at that and say immediately, if you're thinking, if, if 2,000 years of pious jargon haven't, haven't completely clouded over our sensibilities about what's really being said at Christmas, we're going to look at this wonderful gift and we're going to say, and are we that bad off? And the answer is yes. See, the incarnation is the gospel. The incarnation tells us how great God is. He's greater than you think. The incarnation tells us how sinful you are. You're worse off than you think. You're in more serious spiritual condition than you think. And thirdly, it tells us he's more loving than we think. He came, you see, in verse, uh, in verse 30, 31, 32, 33. The messenger says his name will be Jesus, which means Savior. It literally means God rescues. And he came to rule us as king. He's the king who's come to save us. But he's gone through that in order to save us. The incarnation shows us how much he loves us. Dorothy Sayers, one of my favorite authors, puts it this way. She says, the incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to allow us to be limited, to suffer, and to be subject to sorrows and death, for whatever reason God did that, he has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He can ask nothing from us that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty. He died in disgrace. He suffered infinite pain, all for us, and he thought it well worth his while. You know, that little phrase at the end, he thought it well worth his while, reminds us of the prophecy of Isaiah, who says, the results of his suffering he shall see and be satisfied. Now, when you do something and you say, what I got was worth it, it means that what you got was more valuable than what you lost. That's how you make it in life. Sell high, you know, buy low, sell high, right? That's how you make it in life. Uh, And it's even true here. It's worth his while. He sees the results of his sacrifice and he he will see it and say, the infinite pain that cost me was worth it. Well, what does he get for all that infinite pain? Us. 
The incarnation, see, if you have a God who couldn't become human, if you have a God who's too great for that, what you mean is you have a God who doesn't love you like this God loved his people. My, uh, one of my sons has a, a little CD about, uh, it's, it's, I guess it's a popular song and it's, it's a cute song and it's a very typical song and uh, it's really not a very imp- interesting song, but uh, <laughs> the climax of the chorus, it, a woman is singing it, and the climax of the chorus is something that is so absolutely seminal to the way you feel whenever you fall in love. You know, again, it's not very illuminating, but she, at, the, at the climax of the chorus, she says, say, you'll love me forever, never stop, never whatever. Say, you'll love me forever, never stop. Whatever. Okay, you say that's not great poetry, but I'll tell you, whenever you fall in love, whenever you fall in love, whenever you're at the moments of intimacy, you say that. You don't just say it metaphorically, you need that. You say, I want you to love me forever, and I want you to love me whatever. Forever, whatever. Now, there is not a person in the universe except one that could ever respond to that. There's nobody can even respond to that. Now, you say, well, you know, when you get excited and you get, you know, of course you talk like that. What do you mean, of course? You talk like that because as a human being, you have to have that. You want that. And you're addressing somebody who can never give it to you. Nobody can love you forever, and nobody certainly can love you whatever. But in the incarnation, we're told there's only one person in the universe to whom you can address that kind of slop. And he has answered. He has responded. He has. See, the incarnation is the gospel. He's greater than you think. It's not just that God is great. He's that great. And you're more sinful than you think. You're not just a little bit broken. You're destroyed. You need salvation. You don't just need a help. And he has done the most radically loving thing anybody could do. He has loved you forever. He has loved you whatever. See. Everybody thinks they know the Christmas story. Yet, while there are many Christian references all around us during this season, how closely have you examined what really happened that first Christmas night? In his book, Hidden Christmas, Tim Keller takes you on an illuminating journey into the surprising background of the Nativity story to help you better understand the redeeming power of God's grace. Hidden Christmas is our thanks for your gift to help Gospel and Life reach more people with the amazing love of Christ. Request your copy of Hidden Christmas today when you give at gospelandlife.com slash give. That's gospelandlife.com slash give. Now, here's Tim Keller with the remainder of today's teaching. Jesus, for he will reign forever. Now that is either fantasy or supernatural reality. And it's supernatural reality. Now, how does Mary respond to it? And see, Mary, at this point, in a certain sense, in one sense, I have to be careful when I say it, is the first Christian. Now, it doesn't mean she was the first person who ever believed in God's mercy and was accepted and loved and forgiven. I don't mean that, but there's a sense in which this is the first time in the history of the world that somebody understands how God is going to save us and understands it in its fullness, understands that Jesus Christ is the center. She's the first one. But I think she's great in the way she responds. And I'm going to give you four words and very briefly show you what she does. She goes through four stages. And I think that's very helpful to us. And anybody here needs to realize that if you're going to respond to the gospel message, you have to do what she did. The first stage is sobriety. 
And verse 29, which is always translated this way, it says, verse 29, the angel says greetings, and it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. It's almost, you know, it's kind of comical. You know, what kind of greeting? How many kinds of greetings do angels have? I don't know, but uh, that's really not the best translation. Literally, she says, literally, what it says is, Mary, and it uses an interesting word that basically means to account, Literally, it says, Mary reckoned and weighed up the different possible reasons for what had just happened. A, a word was used there, logizdomai, which means to account, to reckon, to think. In other words, Mary began to think. She said, how do I account for what is going on? Is this a hallucination? Is this, is this, is this real? Is this a dream? What is going on? Now, very briefly, I think it's very important to see, a lot of people say, well, even religious and irreligious people think that the only way you ever talk to an angel is turn off your brain. Irreligious people say, well, you know, I'd love to believe, but, you know, in church you just have to believe I'm a thinker. I reason, I think. And there's even people inside the church, and there's people at least uh, who, who are very religious who say, when it comes to really experiencing the divine, you have to turn off the rationality, you see. Turn off the rational, turn on the mystical. Turn off the uh, analysis and turn on the intuition. Turn off the intellect and turn on the emotion. But that's not what you see with Mary. Mary doesn't sit there and say, wow, an angel. She's saying, what is going on? She reacts just the way you and I would. She doesn't turn off her mind in order to experience God. Why would one half the brain be spiritually inferior to the other half? Why would analysis be inferior to intuition? I'll tell you, one of the ways you know you've experienced God through Christ is that every part of your brain goes ballistic. Theoretical knowledge of God without experience of his love or emotional altered states of consciousness without an intellectual grasp is not knowing God. That's the reason why the Bible talks about experience of God is knowing God, not knowing about God, not just simply feeling God, knowing God. She starts off with sobriety. She says, what's going on here? She doesn't turn her brain off. She thinks. Then secondly, I would say, let's say after sobriety comes sincerity. She says, this isn't going to work. I'm a virgin. Now, you say, what's the difference? Here's the difference. When the angel first speaks, she's just thinking. She says, is this real? She's acting like a normal person. You know, there's a lot of folks out there will say, well, back in those days, people believed in a virgin birth, but now we know it's impossible. And what you're saying is, Mary believed it because she was different than me. She had a worldview different than me. Common sense will tell you, and the text is telling you, she reacted just like you. In fact, she does not have a worldview that makes it easy to believe in a virgin birth. Oh, my. You might have a scientific worldview that makes it difficult to believe in a virgin birth, but she was a Jewish woman. And she was the last person, those were the last people on the face of the earth to have believed that God, through his Holy Spirit power, could come in and impregnate her. She had a worldview far more antithetical to the virgin birth than you do. Don't you dare get off the hook by saying, well, I shouldn't have to believe in the incarnation and these things because now we know. She also didn't know it. Why does she believe in the virgin birth? Because she was credulous? No, because it happened to her. 
You can't say because she was credulous, she was not. Common sense shows us she wasn't. The text shows us she wasn't. Our understanding of culture and history shows us she couldn't have been credulous. Not about this. She was sober. Then secondly, she was sincere. And she starts to say to God, I don't get this. And my suggestion to you, my proposal to you is, do what Mary did. She's still got all sorts of intellectual questions. But if there's a God, if he's there, if it's possible for God to exist, he's a personal God. See? If the God of the Bible is possibly there, then the only way to deal with your doubts and to think these things out is by praying. What she's doing is she's talking to him. She's going to him. She's thinking things out. She's willing to admit her stubbornness. She's willing to admit her doubt. She's willing to admit her weakness. She talks to him. This is sincerity. You know, there's a kind, I think, of skepticism that is afraid to hope and will not honestly seek and go before God and say, I don't believe. Could you help me? You're afraid to hope. On the other hand, I think there's a kind of desperation. I see people very often who want to experience God and they don't want to ask these questions. They say, tell me what to do. Where do I sign on the dotted line? You're using, in that case, you're using religion as a narcotic and you're really just trying to feel good. And if you don't feel good, you'll be gone. Mary shows what real people who really respond to the gospel do. They're not so scared of letting their heart hope that they won't even talk to God. But they're also not just simply using God uh, God as a narcotic, so they're afraid to ask questions. She's wrestling, she's struggling, and she's bringing her doubts to God. Sincerely, honestly, humbly. Then finally, thirdly, she submits. And she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you said. Now realize what she's saying. When she says, may it be, this is not a traditional, listen, this is a traditional culture. When she says, I see that if you have your way with me, I'm going to be an unwed mother. I'm going to get pregnant before I'm married. I'm engaged to Joseph, I'm going to get pregnant. And what is she saying? Let it be to me. May it be. Now here's what she's saying. She says, may it be means, first of all, may I be disgraced. If that's what you want, I expect, I accept it. She will be disgraced. There was no New York City to run off to where everybody says, oh well, whatever. (laughs) She knew that she would be ostracized from her family. She would be ostracized from her friends. She also knew that she would probably lose Joseph. Joseph would probably divorce her. She didn't know that God, in his grace, would send an, an angelic messenger to him. Otherwise, he would have left her and she would have been always an unmarried, young, single mother, which meant she would have been on the lip of poverty all of her life. And what is she saying? She says, may it be. And she's not filled with joy. She says, I see what I need to do and I give myself. You know, the joy comes later. It's not till after she meets Elizabeth, who the angel says, go see Elizabeth. And when when she walks in to see Elizabeth, Elizabeth, suddenly the Spirit of God fills her. And she says, How is it that the mother of my Lord should come to visit me? For when I came to the door, the child in my womb leapt for joy. Oh, blessed is she who believes that what the Lord has said to her will be done. That's Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth confirms the word of the angel, at that point, Mary bursts into song. And she says, my spirit doth rejoice. My soul magnifies the Lord. Mary 
Though here says, I see that I need to submit. I see that you're the Lord and I'm your servant and I'm going to give myself. I'm going to submit. I am not God, you are. But she's not filled with joy yet. The joy comes later. When Elizabeth gives her a confirmation. You see the stages? This is not maybe a nice, simple little way of saying, here's how to receive Christ. Bring him into your life and you'll immediately feel wonderful. Look, soberly she's filled with doubts. Then sincerely she brings them before God. Then finally she knuckles under. She says, I see the evidence, I see what's going on, and I give myself to you and I realize that I give up the right to determine my life. I give up the right to ask for conditions. I give myself to you unconditionally. And as that happens, the experience comes. That's really the way most people that I know have become Christians. There hasn't been a blinding light at once. There's been stages. There's been struggles. There's been surrender in stages. But eventually, eventually always, there's joy. Because when she starts to sing, and it's in the Magnificat, it's later, it's not in the passage we just read. She says, my soul, my spirit... She says, my soul does magnify the Lord and my spirit does exalt in God my Savior. Conclusion. For those of you who seek, let your heart hope. Bring your humble problems and your difficulties to Him. But do it before Him. Do it with Him. Tell Him your problems. Tell Him your needs. For those of you who believe, this is an advanced lesson. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me, as you have said. Uh, I was asking Kathy about this just to make sure I got this straight, but every so often I quote the end of a novel by Elizabeth Elliot called No Graven Image. It's a novel, it's a fiction, uh, but it was based on her life, and it's the best illustration there is of this amazing, amazing passage where Mary finally surrenders and though immediately doesn't have joy, eventually gets it. Uh, the, the novel is about a woman who goes to Latin America to be a missionary, and her life's dream is to uh, uh, translate the Bible. And her life's dream is to translate the Bible into the dialect of one particular needy group of people, Indian tribe there. And uh, the one man who knows Spanish and knows English and knows this particular language uh, the, in the novel uh, he gets sick and she injects him with penicillin. He has a drug reaction and he dies. And her whole life falls apart. And uh, when she wrote the novel, many people, uh, Christians, wrote her nasty letters saying, God would never do that in real life. If you ever gave yourself to God, God would not make you suffer like that. that those things wouldn't happen. And of course, that's almost exactly what actually did happen to her. Not quite. Not quite. In real life, what happened was this man on whom everything in her, her whole career and her whole mission was based was killed in a barroom brawl. Somebody got out of a gun, started shooting. And uh, the, uh, because she was the only white woman in town and therefore she sort of represented authority, they brought the body to her and they said, and, and there he had a bullet in his brain. They said, please dig it out, bring the bullets so that when the authorities get there, you know, you can show the bullets to them. So there he is, she is. She's digging the brain, the bullet out of his brain. This is the man on whom all of her hopes, you know, rested. At the end of the novel, she puts it this way. She says, And God, what of him? He had allowed Pedro to die, or, and I could not then, nor today can I deny the possibility, he had perhaps caused me to destroy him. And does he now, I ask myself there on the graveside, ask me to worship him? Now here's the kicker. God, 
if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. But if, on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. Now I find that I can no longer arrange my life in an orderly succession of projects with realizable goals and demonstrable effects. I can't designate this activity is useful and this activity is useless. For the work in the end, as well as the labeling, is all God's. She said, she, if God is my servant, he'd betrayed me. But if I'm his servant, he just freed me because I used to say, this is something that has to happen, this doesn't. Now I realize, if God is God and I'm his servant, then I just go about my work because the work and the labeling's God. I don't label things anymore. I don't set my heart on this and that. Who knows? He, she was liberated. Mary was liberated. This is the most advanced lesson possible. This passage has the most simple lesson, that is, go to God and tell him you're confused, and he will show you the way. But it has the most advanced lesson, and that is, treat him as God, and God will do incredible things through you. You say, well, I'm not Mary. Yes, but we see when Gabriel shows up and says, Hail Mary, full of grace, the word does not mean God was attracted to you by your greatness. Full of grace means having been graced. Mary, you're great because God has come to you. God is not coming to you because you're great. May it be to me, she said, even as you said. That's the ultimate. That's the most advanced lesson possible. And that's the way to joy. Let us pray. Our Father, at Christmas time, we have something, the most basic lesson. Go to God. See the one who loved us by sending us his son. If you've got doubts, just tell him about them. And he will lead you through. But we also have the most absolutely advanced lesson. Jesus Christ emptied himself to become full. Mary emptied herself to become full. Mary served and went all the way to the bottom in order to raise the, rise to the top. So did Jesus. So must we. Show us what that means. We thank you, Lord, that Mary and her relationship to her little baby shows us the meaning of life, of heaven and earth. We thank you that you speak to us in this way. Give us the things we've asked for, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you were encouraged by today's teaching, please rate and review it so more people can discover this podcast. This month's sermons were recorded in 1996 and 1997. The sermons and talks you hear on the Gospel and Life podcast were preached from 1989 to 2017 while Dr. Keller was senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church.